Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT and a partner at Skybridge. SALT is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks is a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we were honored to have our guests today at our SALT conference in New York uh, this past September. But our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. Today's guest on SALT Talks is Miles S. Nadal, who's an international entrepreneur, industrialist, and philanthropist. He's the founder and executive chairman of Peerage Capital, which is a leading North American business services and private investment firm focused on real estate services, real estate investment, self-storage, wealth advisory, and asset management. Operating across North America, Peerage is the single largest franchise of Sotheby's International Real Estate and includes a broad range of other North American real estate services companies operating in the residential resale and new construction marketing space. Peerage uses a proprietary partnership model to build long-term relationships with successful entrepreneurs, accelerating their growth and allowing them to enhance and accelerate their long-term growth. Peerage sells over $70 billion of residential real estate across 275 offices and 7,000 agents and employees. Peerage's asset management business today is over $10 billion in AUM. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony to begin the interview. Well, uh, first of all, it's an, you got an amazing life story, Miles, and it's a great introduction, John. But what you're leaving out of Miles Nadal's life is that he's just an amazing friend, okay? He's got relationships all over the world. Uh, somebody once asked me about you, Miles, and I said, well, Miles is like the O positive friend. You know, you have like a universal donor. I don't know too many people that can't get along with you. And so I want you to tell us about that temperament. I want you to take us back through your upbringing and your educational journey and tell us a little bit about your first-class temperament. Well, I was born uh, to two lovely parents uh, who were married for 40 years, 39 and a half were fundamentally miserable. If they weren't throwing plates, breaking glass, slamming doors, wasn't time to go to school. I think they loved each other, except when you're born into a family that has no money and they're broke, it's very hard to have self-esteem when you have no means. Uh, We grew up in 900 square feet, two bedroom and bathroom apartment, and uh, our combined income of a family was about $10,000 in its best year. So I learned early on um, humility because that's where we came from. And uh, my father and mother both uh, were people who believed that you should do unto others as you should have them do unto you. And the practical reality was that um, we we grew up in a way that I realized that uh, you can't have too much humility. And um, everybody in life goes through adversity. And the true test of friendship and character in life is uh, the ability to overcome adversity, but also to support those less fortunate. And like we were talking about earlier, if our families are healthy and we have you know, a roof over our heads, we have the wherewithal to provide for our families, and we have the good fortune to maybe help those less fortunate, our cup runneth over. And I think as I've gotten older, I'm turning 65, I realized that um, why wouldn't I be 
happy to help those who are in need. And why wouldn't I want to be known as a good friend? I actually think that is the ultimate compliment. If you are thought of as a person who's kind and thoughtful and caring, and you're a good friend, and I define a good friend as being good to others when they have no ability or desire to help you. And to me, that's okay. And I tell my children, you should do for others what you would like to do, accepting, expecting no reciprocity. Hmm. And if there is no reciprocity and there's no appreciation, it's okay. You did the right thing. You did it because it made you feel good. And God will look kindly on you in the future. So there's a, uh, let me let me test this on you. There's a nonlinear exchange of karma, meaning that if you're out there pushing out nonlinear karma, meaning you're not expecting any quid pro quo, even if it's not well, well received by the people that you're offering this goodwill to, it eventually creates a greater welfare effect for you and your family. Is that fair to say? I hope so. I do hope so. Uh, that is the thesis I operate under. Mm -hmm. um, on, on the other hand, I do it. Well, when you say when you say you hope so, that that implies that you've been disappointed by that a little bit in life. Well, yeah, I, I'm sure everybody. Well, I have. Know, I mean, listen, I'll talk very candidly. Sure, I I, I try to push out a lot of goodwill, and uh, uh, it comes back sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't, but uh, but it also connects me into people like you. So, I mean, for, that, for those reasons, I'm very grateful. Well, I, I, and I feel the same way about you. Um, the reality is I don't expect goodwill and good karma to come around. I just hope they don't wish me ill will and bad karma, especially when I do good things. On the other hand, I do say to my kids, look, I, you know, I, I try to be good to others. I try to be kind and generous and thoughtful for selfish reasons. I say your dad's selfish. It makes me feel good to be kind and generous and thoughtful to others. And the other thing is, if you're high profile, you're a high profile guy, you have substantial uh, accoutrements of success. People expect you to behave in a way that is not exactly elegant and low key and understated and humble and contrite. Uh, so I think it's our responsibility to sort of go the other direction in our dealings with people yeah, on an everyday well, basis. It's very well said. You want to, you know, you want to be the salt of the earth. You don't want anybody that you that may feel powerless. You described your family uh, having difficulties with self-esteem due to money. That's very similar to my family. And so you want to make sure that you're gracious to the powerless because what well, we all recognize, Miles, that we're really just the same. Doesn't matter, you know. And but for the grace of God, our circumstances could be very different. And so you want to stay grounded. Um, you took a non-traditional path. You didn't go to college. Uh, you started your business at 22. Um, how do you think your journey helped shape you as a business person? And what would you say to young people today about your journey? Well. As I've always said, I think it's sometimes in life, it's advantageous to being disadvantaged and it's disadvantageous to being advantaged. Um, the good news is um, I'm here to tell a story uh, about overcoming adversity many times and it worked. Um, I used to jokingly say to my mother, I wish I had a few more bucks. And uh, she said, but you'd have a lot less character. I said, well, I have I had some character to give up, but not a lot of money to give up at the time of building the business. 
I think that, um, you know, the young guys and gals in our office, you know, ask me about the journey. And the reality is, I think, um, you know, I know it like, I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two like farmer's life insurance. So um, I think going through the, uh, I, I think I have some advantages in respect that I started early. You said I, I was 22 years old. I was 21, 22. Um, as a result of that, I've had, you know, going on 43 years of experience. And um, I think as you and I have agreed, the School of Hard Knocks teaches you a lot. Um, I don't believe that I am really uneducated. I think I'm not formally educated, but in my pursuit of conversations with 22,000 people that I've met over the years, uh, I feel that I have learned a great deal. Uh, and I have shaped my knowledge base and curiosity uh, through those interactivities. Um, there are some people like you who have remarkable formal education. You know, you went to Harvard Law School. You're a great entrepreneur. You would have been a great entrepreneur with formal education, without formal education. I don't believe that um, if I was more formally educated, I would have been any less of an entrepreneur. Uh, but having said that, I don't think the path I took has diminished the opportunity for me to uh, build a large enterprise, um, create value, uh, mentor those less fortunate, and to give back to society. And I still believe, and we've talked about this in New York, I still believe my dreams exceed my memories. I have very good memories, and I feel very blessed and privileged, but I still feel the best is yet to come. Maybe it's not, but that's the basis by which I get up every morning. Yeah, but it probably is, Miles. That's the beauty of a life well-lived. You, you, you started the first business in photography. It's very different from what you do now. You founded Purist Capital 40 years ago. Explain the transition and how you started Peerage and how did you, because you've iterated yourself many times and you've adapted as a business person, an entrepreneur, give us the formula. Well, I, I'd like to tell you there was a formula, but the young aspiring business student meets the successful businessman and they ask him, how'd you become so successful? The older gentleman looks at him and he said, well, I jump at my opportunities. And the young guy says, but Mr. Scaramucci, how do you know which opportunities to jump at? And he says, I don't, I just keep jumping. So for 40 years, I've been in the keep jumping business. I started taking pictures of children and sports teams when I was 12. I had a Kodak Instamatic. I set up a dark room um, with money I got from my bar mitzvah in a 900 square feet, two bedroom, one bathroom apartment. And the bathroom was our dark room. And it sort of evolved from there. Um, I was always pretty good with arithmetic. I watched very successful people. I asked tons of questions. I was like, uh, you know, Curious George. I would sit with the parents of my friends and ask them about their business accomplishments, and things like that. And I sort of got to learn. Um, when I was younger, I, I didn't really know what I couldn't accomplish. I basically said, I think anything's possible. And if you put your head down, you can, you know, accomplish remarkable things. I, I think the um, the great quote from um, Jim Volvano said, God must have loved ordinary people. God must have loved ordinary people because he made so many of them. And each and every day in every walk of life, ordinary people accomplish extraordinary things. And he said, um, when he was the coach of the Rutgers basketball team, I'm signing up to be an accomplished 
person. I want to accomplish extraordinary things, and I'm an ordinary person. I come from humble, you know, Italian immigrant background, and I think I can accomplish extraordinary things. So I said, okay, if I work for Jim Valvano, you know, I'm going to sign up for that. Very powerful public speaker, very, uh, you know, amazing guy. Obviously won the championship with Iona, but just an amazing guy. Had an untimely death which uh, is also, you know, a, a tragedy in some ways, but it also forced a lot of philosophical perspective on him. Um, macro headwinds. Markets are going up and down. Uh, I've counted eight bear markets. You're a couple of years older than me. You've been probably through nine or 10 bear markets or recessions. How do you handle these things? What's your best advice to people? Uh, what trends are you noticing right now that you may be excited about? You know, are we coming out of this? Are we heading lower? You know, tell tell me, tell me how you sturdy yourself for environments like this. So, uh, the best way to sturdy yourself is to go through lots of, them. <laughs> and you know, um, as as the expression goes, we believe that this too shall pass. Uh, you know, when we started in 1980, interest rates went from 11 to 22 percent. We went public on Friday, October the 16th of 87, the day before Black Monday. We got listed in the middle of meltdown on Friday, October the 23rd, the first day in the history that the Toronto Stock Exchange closed early. Um, we went through, you know, 2001. We went through 2008. We went through 2020. So um, the great Jim Volvano quote, never give up. Never, ever, ever give up. And so when I've been building my business, um, I've always said failure was never an option because then it would have put everybody on the street, including my parents. Um, even to this day uh, that we've enjoyed some prosperity, I just say that philosophy of persistence and determination, determination alone is omnipotent. That Ray Kroc said, I believe very strongly. Um, if I really understood where markets were going, I'd be super rich, and I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Nobody's taking a tag day for me, but I, you know, the, the reality is, Buffett had a couple of great quotes. I've been following him since 1987. I've been to ten Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings. He said, "You should be greedy when others are fearful, and fearful when others are greedy." Try to, um, you know, follow that. He said, "When it's raining gold, bring out a pail, not a thimble." And he said, just remember, in the last 25 years that my net worth went up 10 times, Berkshire Hathaway stock went down 50% or more three separate times. So what's really critical is not as much incremental intellect. Like he said, if you have an IQ of 160, give your friend 30 basis points, you don't need it. But it's temperament that's more critical to weather adversity than anything else. That you have to, you know, besides battening down the hatches and doing the things necessary to survive, to ensure that you can live to fight another day. But what's also critical is to understand that this too shall pass. And the problem is that people have a propensity to react and to not play the long game. And hopefully as we get older, we put more cushions of economic um, comfort behind us so that we're not totally exposed. I mean, my but first, you, my you first. Been, yeah, not to interrupt you, but you've had situations where the world's coming to an end. And you're like, oh my God, this is going to affect my standard of living. Am I wrong in saying that? 100%. 100%. And uh, 
I've tried to, as I've gotten older, take a more conservative tack about leverage and uh, about investing and about not getting ahead of my skis. Um, I am, you know, way better than I used to be. I'm not ideal yet. Uh, but because, uh, you know, entrepreneurs like us, when we see opportunity, yeah, we're throwing we're the ball, throwing the ball, throwing the ball. I mean, I'm getting intercepted right now. I'm fumbling the ball, but I'm all, I'm ready to get dropped back into the pocket again and fire it again. Um, you got 12 principles that you've talked about with me and others you've written about. Explain how you develop these principles. And do you have a favorite of your 12? So um, they have evolved over 42, almost 43 years. Uh, I believe. First of all, we have created our success through partnership. We do not believe that we buy businesses. We believe we architect partnerships. We believe in the concept that we should invest in passion, that we are an organization who follows the principle that you invest with your heart. And when we are finding partners, we think that cultural fit and chemistry is more important even than uh, competency and pure intellect. So, you know, we have basic principles that we live our life by, not only for partnership, but sort of what I espouse to people about friendships, about life partners, et cetera. So we say, you know, partner only with people that you like, admire, respect, and trust. Only partner with people you're prepared to have breakfast, lunch, or dinner with a second time. Only partner with people that have uh, the large craniums, big candle power and good judgment. Uh, partner only with people that you're prepared to have a long weekend in the small cabin, small boat, small ranch, or small RV. A partner only with people that have the human compassion gene. If you don't want to give time, talent, or treasure to the benefit of others, you're usually selfish. Only partner with people that are kind to animals. If, you don't, if, if somebody is mean to their dog, that is a very bad character flaw. Uh, only partner with people that have the same passion, dedication, and willingness to sacrifice for the common mission. Are we on the same side of the table through good times and bad times? Uh, only partner with people that understand God gave you two ears and one mouth in proportion for a reason and use them accordingly. Uh, only partner with people that understand arithmetic. If you can't count, you can't meet time-bound and measurable objectives, and you sort of have no business to be in business. Uh, only partner with people that are good listeners. Because at the end of the day, if you're not willing to listen, it's hard to survive the vagaries and ups and downs of partnership. And the last one would be only under partner with people that understand hula. That a lot of our success in life has nothing to do with us. It's the good fortune we have from the people we meet along the journey and the good fortune that God gives us to just be lucky to be where we were at the right time in the right place. To capitalize on opportunity. Yeah, and I, I, I think those are. I think that's correct. But I do think there's an element of persistence. I mean, there are so many people that quit and then they say, "Oh, papa, you've gone through five or six major tribulations in your life. You haven't quit," and the result of which it's led to the economic success, but also the spiritual and personal and philosophical success. What, what are the? Uh, if you had to say something related to your cultural values. And you were put in a position where somebody said to you, okay, what is the one piece of the DNA, the cultural DNA 
that you really can't live without as an entrepreneur? Well, I think kindness is critically important and have a generosity of spirit that you want to be generous in your compliments and your kindness and your outreach to those who you don't know if they can help you. You don't know if they can't help you, but it makes you feel good. If you said to me, um, there are four quadrants around cultural fit and uh, competency. Obviously, the first thing you look for is in the top right corner. You want people highly competent and a great cultural fit. You don't want to have people that are low competency, low cultural fit. And if somebody has high competency, low cultural fit, those people are carcinogens and they will ultimately hurt the organization. The person who's got wonderful cultural fit and great, um, sorry, low, the person who has low competency but high cultural fit, you want to do everything you can to mentor them, to support them, to put your arm around them, do everything you can to help them succeed. And if they don't, then that's a different story, but you really want to do everything you can. So I think part of the culture of peerage is we have, I don't know, 8,000 employees and agents across the country, across North America for that matter, 80% in the US. And our CEO who just spent you know five days with me, uh, Trevor Maunder, we talked about that it's our job to mentor the young talent within our organization and share with them our values and make sure they share them with those that are coming up behind them. And if you don't have a culture of kindness and generosity and thoughtfulness and humility, you will not succeed long-term. That's our belief. I have to turn it over, Miles, to John Darcy because he's a matinee idol and he gets very good ratings on these salt talks. Okay, so we're going to let the youth and the brilliance and this new demographic uh, enter the equation here. Go ahead, Mr. Darcy. I know you have got questions for Miles. Thank you, Anthony. And please excuse my schlubby appearance here. I just had knee surgery last week, so I'm makeshift studio here at home. But it's great to have you on, Miles. Pleasure. Yeah. Just selfishly, I want to ask you, you're somebody who's built this incredible culture at Peerage and and built this business from the ground up. What's the advice and mentoring that you offer to young people in your organization as you're trying to coach them? You've talked a lot about these principles that guide you and in, in your business, but what is the, the type of mentoring and lessons that you try to impart on, on the young people in your firm? Well, the first thing is I try to desensitize the whole issue like I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a philanthropist, I'm an international businessman, I have a bunch of trappings. I'm no different than anybody else. In fact, I would say, I say to people, you started off so much further ahead than me. I'm a very good example that if I can succeed, anybody can succeed. Because it's not like I had advantages in life. And I think that what I try to say to people is, People who accomplish extraordinary things, they're usually just ordinary people. They just, as Anthony said, they work harder. They're more determined. They're usually highly focused. They never give up. And they've had good fortune of good timing. But, you know, success in life and in business is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, the problem that we all have is everybody wants instant gratification. So I jokingly say to people, peerage is a bit of an overnight success. 
It took 30 years to build in the last 13 years to harvest. Not many people want to put in the first 30 years of just grinding it out and overcoming adversity and dealing with setbacks and, you know, all the things that are, every entrepreneur's story is the same. They're, they're a little different, but they're all the same. You know, they had setbacks, they overcame it. They were near bankruptcy, like uh, Phil Knight at Nike. Uh, then something good happened and they they rode the wave and they continued to pull up the ladder behind them, as my father-in-law would say. You know, so I try to say to people, you're just as capable to be an iconic success as anybody else. And usually I'm dealing with people that are superbly disciplined. Um, they have great work ethic. They come from lovely families. They're well-educated. So, And if they're between 25 and 32 years of age or whatever, like this is just the beginning of the journey. And hopefully that they will, you know, I say you should pray every morning and every night that you'll have prosperity early in your life in big scale, and you'll have adversity very late in your life in a very minor way. And uh, you just try and, you know, put one foot in front of each other every day. Because if you do, over 40 years, it's quite remarkable what you can accomplish. You know, as Buffett said, in the last 25 years, his stock was down 50% or more three times. This is the greatest investor of our generation or maybe in history of America. So if you think about that, you know, you can be very successful and you can go through lots of adversity and still come out at the end of the game. Very accomplished. Well, very well said. Uh, we heard you talk at Salt New York about the universe, the universal dream uh, with regards to entrepreneurship and building a business. What is the universal dream and how can people achieve it? So I have the privilege of knowing Mike Milken since 1987, so 35 years ago. I went to the what the 1987 Predators Ball. The assets in the room were $6.8 trillion. I'll never forget that. Back then, I didn't know the difference between preferred stock and livestock. Uh, Mike was serenaded by uh, Diana Ross. I didn't know what I was experiencing until history told me. Um, he said it's important that we tell the stories of entrepreneurial success stories because, and he created this Milken Center for the Advancement of the American Dream. I think that the American dream is the universal dream. It's not just about America. It's not about Canada. It's a universal dream that people want to be able to start from humble beginnings, create, you know, entrepreneurial business success, be able to provide for their families and God willing, be able to share that success to benefit those less fortunate. I think that's a universal dream. I think it's as true in India as it is in China, much in Africa as it is in Indonesia, as much as it is in Eastern Europe or Western Europe, or Canada, United States, or anywhere else in the world. Entrepreneurs who create enterprises have the opportunity to create employment for others, to create wealth, to be able to stimulate the economy and hopefully be able to give back to those less fortunate, which I think is the circular, you know, life cycle of success in business as an entrepreneur. Create from nothing, build value, create employment and wealth for all the people around you, and then be in a position to create additional affluence by which you can share for the greater good of mankind. 
There's a great forest witchcraft quote that I use. It says, 100 years from now, no one will ever remember the car you drove, the house you lived in, or for that matter, how much money you had in your bank account. But the world may be a different place if you've made a difference in the life of a young person. Whatever good fortune I've had to share to help younger people is the greatest gift that they give me to help those. People say, well, no, you're very kind and generous. They say, nope, they're the ones I get more out of it than they get. And, and that probably is one of my inspirations to come to work every day is to be with young, ambitious people who want to learn, who want to hear stories, who want to grow, and who want to be part of creating an entrepreneurial success for the future, that they can create value in proportion to the value that they contribute to the organization. So speaking of your desire to continue to, to keep the ladder down so people can climb up uh, and build on things that, that you have helped build at Peerage, you talked at Salt New York as well about succession planning in a way that I thought was uh, very interesting and, and admirable. And you know, to cite a couple other people, you see someone like Ray Dalio at Bridgewater recently stepped down from, uh, from Bridgewater, but has built a culture and a infrastructure in place at the firm to allow the firm to live on. It's something that you've talked about wanting to do at Peerage is, is when uh, life after miles comes, as, as you talked about, um, the firm doesn't skip a beat and continues to build uh, on what you've already built. Uh, could you talk about the most important factors in creating a company that can endure beyond the founder? Well, I think that's the great challenge that all entrepreneurs have, right? Uh, some have done it very, very well and others have, 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 have struggled. I mean, you know, um, so our belief is that you should create a plan of succession while your dreams still exceed your memories. I, I, I'm 65 years of age. I have no desire to retire. People say, well, would you ever retire? I say, yes. They say, when? I said, five years after I pass away, I am committed to full retirement. In the meantime, though, I do want to create an organization that is not dependent upon the style or ability of one or two key people. So I hope I will live a long life. Uh, but I say to people, I want to create a plan of life after Malzi, uh now. And I want to create it now so that two things happen. They, the rest of the organization gets the benefit of my oversight and my emotional involvement and some of my storytelling, um, which unfortunately they've had to hear for some of them many, many years, the same stories. But most importantly, where I can also derive satisfaction and gratification from my involvement to watch the fruits of everyone's labor you know, continue to prosper. And I have an opportunity to enjoy seeing their independent success and accomplishments. I don't think that I need to be involved every minute of every day, but I do like my involvement. And th the thing that I'm very fortunate about is that our management team is very patient to understand that a lot of my desire of being involved is not so much because I think I'm going to add huge value because I don't want to lose the emotional gratification and the intellectual stimulation of being involved in the decision-making of capital allocation. I have zero desire to go to meetings like I used to. I re work remotely 90% of the time, but I feel very well plugged in. I set up a call today. It's a Zoom call with, I call them the four amigos. 
Um, they're young between the ages of sort of 26 and 31 because I miss them and I care about them. I tell you, I love you. I care about you. I miss you. Let's get to get, let's have a Zoom and let's just talk about life. So I feel that we have an, a, a, an advantage because we are a familial family office and I can take the long view of people and their involvement. I say to people when I meet someone extraordinary, your job is to be here forever. My job and our team's job is to make it so exciting that you would never consider going anywhere else. And sometimes I say that after six months or a year. And I hope, and I say this to people, I hope one day you're Trevor Monier. He was 23 years old, 27 years old when he started. He's 50 and a half years old. He's had 23 years with me. I just spent five days with him. I love him. I respect him. I admire him. And not only do I trust him with my life, I trust him with my children's life because he's responsible for life after Milesy with the whole team. Amazing. Well, Miles, it's a pleasure to have you on. You know, I have to pay Anthony a little bit of a compliment. You guys remind me a lot of each other uh, in terms of your backgrounds and the way you mentor young people and try to instill a culture within your firm that'll last could, could uh, be bo- beyond could yourself. Be, could be bonus season, Miles. Could be bonus <laughs> season. I mean, you got that, right? I would say that Anthony is the better looking, more youthful and fitter version of Miles Dell. Yes, that's true. Oh, that, 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 that's he's a huge compliment. More, I'll take that. I don't know if that, any of that is true. Of, uh, he's much more brazen in his use of Botox and, you know, hair injections and anything else you can think so of. The hair is real. No, 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 hold on a second. The, the color is not real, but the hair is totally real. Okay. There is a, hey, Miles, at my age, to have your forehead look like a bowling ball, you have to pay a price, Miles. You have to pay I, a price. I, well, I understand. I, I, I've had eight hair transplants. I got limited donor area left. I've been, and, and my attitude is, it's easier to explain the quality of aesthetic than the lack thereof. I will use whatever medical science will bring me. Amen. If I go in for breast reduction before I'm 65, don't judge me, Darcy, okay? All right, you you guys must have me. the same astrological sign, or maybe you can do a, a live reading on air here, Anthony. Well, we, from the first time we ever met over 30 years ago, it was sort of love at first sight. Well, and, you know, Miles and hosted he, my first book party. I don't know if you know that, John. He was, uh, he hosted, he hosted Good Guy, Goodbye Gordon Gecko in the ballroom at the Regency Hotel in 2010. It was a very, very nice gesture. Um, Jeff Prozac was there. Toronto as well, where we hosted your second book launch. Yeah, you were very, very, very good to me. You've always been very, very good to me. So. But what goes around comes around. And we've had the same reciprocal respect, admiration, and, uh, and affection for each other. And uh, it works. And it's been great, and it will continue to be great as long as I'm around and he's around. Amen. Thanks again to Miles Nadal for joining today's Salt Talk. And thank you for everybody that tuned in to today's Salt Talk with Miles Nadal. Just a reminder, all of these episodes of Salt Talks are available on demand on our website at salt.org backslash talks, on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube, or anywhere that you consume podcasts. This is available in audio form along with all the other episodes that we've recorded over the last four years. A reminder, we're on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, 
This is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.